being a part of that was was everything to me and it helped kind of develop and guide the person that I became off the field as well. We're gonna go out on the field. We're gonna score as many goals as we can. We're gonna have fun. Oh, Becky, you're well placed. If we imagine the sports space as a kind of museum of sports, there are sacred spots in that space for the most powerful moments, what we might call the greatest hits. These moments can ascend to the Mount Olympus level for a few different reasons. They have storylines that are bigger than sport. Think Miracle on Ice or Leicester City winning the Premier League. Many can be identified by a single photograph, an official trying to stop Kathy Switzer from running the Boston Marathon as the first female numbered entrant, for example. Or they're powerful because of the change catalyzed after the fact. Jackie Robinson's debut in the majors, let's say. Well, the U.S. women's national team winning the 1999 Women's World Cup is a greatest hits moment that had all of that. Does it have a storyline bigger than sport? Yeah, the win can really be considered an iconic moment in the modern feminist movement. There had never been, still has never been, a women's sporting event attended by so many people. And that was a fact that said, hey, look, female athletes are legit. Women's sports are legit, and they mean something. Recognizable image? Brandi Chastain taking off her shirt after scoring the game-winning penalty kick and showing her sports bra. That was the whole big deal about that picture. Change it set forth, the legacy it created. Well, aside from the U.S. women's national team being the powerhouse it has been for over 20 years since that moment, millions of girls latched on to soccer after the fact. Role models were established in these 99ers, and then their predecessors, Alex Morgan, Megan Rapino, countless others. And they all have this incredible influence and voice. It was powerful. And Saskia Weber was there, creating the powerful and soaking in the powerful. She is one of the special women who holds the title of 99er. That journey to one of the most significant moments in sports in front of 90,000 plus fans, had a humble beginning in front of, well, only a couple. I mean, I grew up in Princeton, New Jersey, and my mother is Dutch, so um, soccer was in my blood. My grandfather was a soccer a pro soccer player. My, my uncle uh, was a pro soccer player, so it's just something that was in my blood and back in Princeton, you know, I did the whole like AYSO, my dad was my coach thing and, and so on and so forth. It was just anything my brother did, um, I had to do. That was it, period. Weber, a goalie, developed her skills playing club in the early 80s and went on to play Division I collegiate soccer at Rutgers, where she won many, many things for the Scarlet Knights. She's in the Hall of Fame there. She's actually the first woman soccer player to be inducted into that Hall of Fame. Kind of a sign of things to come. 
and her career with the U.S. women's national team started gradually, maybe even kind of late at first. But as it became clear how talented she was, it all happened very quickly. I was back then, like, I played club and everything, and, um, and ODP was, like, the big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I hadn't really, like, I was on one of those clubs that um, they didn't want to share their players, you know, you know and everything like that. And so I didn't, I didn't even like go into ODP or do anything until I think I was a sophomore in high school. And, um, I made our, you know, our regional team when I, when I tried out. And then by, by that summer I was on, like, I was, even though I was only what, 16, I was with the oldest, um, U19s ODP. And then, um, I did that. I think that was going into my junior year. And then I just, went right from there into I got a call to go um I never did a camp or anything like that I got a you know brought in to go on a trip to um Bulgaria with what could be called I guess at that point the you like the under 20 national team it was basically the national team that everybody knew in the early 90s but minus like a couple players so it was like Mia was there, Brandy was there, Julie was there, Christine Lilly was there and everything. We went to Bulgaria, played. And then I just started doing, like, um, competitions with the ODP team and everything. And then I came into my first camp um, my senior year, uh, right before the 91 World Cup. Was I think I was in one camp, two camps, um, in Cocoa Beach, Florida, at the Cocoa Expo. And, um, which is nothing like they have now, trust me. It was like, it was like random dormitory dorms with a lot of like, um, palmetto bugs, whatever nice word you want to give to that. And, you know, you were really excited. You went home with like a t-shirt. So, so, um, but that was kind of my first introduction into all that. And then after the 99 world cup there, 91 world cup, sorry, there was a, little bit of a lull and then I got brought back in um for our our first camp and and started kind of full-time with the uh, team in 92. I can't speak for all other team women's sports but nowadays women's soccer players who are good enough to represent their country have a decent number of options to play professionally and that's not to say they make a lot of money but you can make a life out of it if you're good enough if you are, like Weber was back then, among the best. You think about now, there are pro leagues in multiple countries, so you can really play year-round, keeping yourself sharp, getting better in top environments, and getting games under your belt. But it wasn't like that back in the 90s. And so Weber had to get creative for a good portion of her career to stay on top. During that time, I was at Rutgers, but then um, I trained with the Rutgers men's team. So in between that time, like I would train in the winter, spring, I would just train with the Rutgers men's team and, um, leading up to the 95, uh, world cup. Um, and then we went and we got bronze in Sweden and then coming back from that, getting ready for the 96 Olympics, same thing. I would just go home, train with the, uh, Rutgers men's team, um, and my, my, you know, physical trainers and everything like that. And then, then leading into 95, 96 Olympics, I signed a contract to play pro in Japan. Mm. 
And so right literally, I think five days after the 96 Olympics was over, I was on a plane and I played in Japan for the next three years. At that time, it was like the best, like highest paid professional. There was that in Sweden. And so most of the international stars were in Japan at that time playing. So it was, it was just really good for me to be playing against that competition for those three years. And then when I'd come home in, on my breaks, we'd go into national team camp. Um, we'd go, you know, on trips, we'd go to, you know, the Algarve cup and um, have friendlies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Though she was probably one of the best women's goalkeepers in the world in the 90s, during her seven-year career with the U.S. Women's National Team, Weber spent most of her time as backup to Brianna Scurry. Gets to this point, the goalkeeping position requires resilience, a whole lot of resilience for all those who step into it because it is so unique. Field positions get subbed. Goalkeepers don't, unless they're injured, really. They also shoulder a lot of pressure swift to be criticized when they mess up, not often praised for merely doing their, quote, job, like forwards are, for example. But it's these things precisely that help to forge something really remarkable within and among goalkeepers, something special that is transferable to other areas. Well, I mean, we always had, uh, Brian and I basically were one and two for that my entire career with the national team. And so we had such a great rapport between the two of us and training ethic with each other which is why I think it was always the two of us um you know and Tracy was there Mary Harvey was there um Siri came in and and people came in and out but basically I think because of the way we trained together and pushed each other that um we just we we made it work we worked well together and so even with the national team like you you know you're on the bench is the second best team in the world. So, so it, you know, it was just, it was being a part of that environment, being a part of that sorority that, um, that just made me keep going. That made me just proud of what I was doing and those moments that I would get, that I did get to play and stuff. Yeah, it is hard. I just talked about this. Like I was probably rostered for over 200 games and played in like 30. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but at the same time, being a part of, that was it was everything to me and it helped kind of develop and guide the person that I became off the field as well. And so heading into that history-making 1999 World Cup, Weber was the backup keeper. Now let me give you a very quick rundown of what happened in 1999. The U.S. women make it to the final of the tournament being hosted on their home soil. They outscore their opponents 12-1 to 1 in the three group stage games. They top the group, win an absolute nail-biter of a quarterfinal over Germany, 3-2. Next up is Brazil in the semis, 2-0 victory. And then the final against China, a big rival, maybe the biggest rival. A face-off against the Chinese in the championship game in the Rose Bowl. Over 90,000 pour into the stadium to watch. The game is scoreless after regulation, scoreless after extra time, so we are going to a PK shootout. China must score here. The shot, save scoring! But it also means that the USA could win the World Cup on this next kick. Chastain will take it. Go! The U.S. win 5-4. 
It was incredible. I mean, I think you'll get the same answer for everybody. It was Beatlemania, and it um, it came very fast, you know. And from the minute, you know, we were going to that game at Giant Stadium until still till now but it was it was it was incredible and it was incredible to see the country and all these young soccer players just rally around us and just you know just finally be excited about soccer on such an international level and it changed the face of women's soccer and so i think men's soccer in the united states um forever mm. and being a part of that was incredible it was also incredibly stressful because being here in the united states and all i on you for that month like the thought of failing wasn't an option um with the with title nine coming up for review with all of these outside things there was a lot of pressure and stress and when we almost you know when that game that quarterfinal game against germany we you know we could have lost that game it would have changed the face of things you know because that was one and done and so um the weeks after it was again. It was like a rock, you're, we were rock stars, and it was a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, um, you know, going from the, you know all the television stuff, and you know, getting to go to the White House, and getting to fly on like Air Force Two down to Cape Canaveral, and um, we got to talk on you know on the Hill in front of like senators and stuff. Or at least I did um, about the importance of Title Nine and. You know, all these things that came from it. You know, I got to do a Tommy Hilfiger um, national tour to help raise money for St. Jude's Hospital. Like, things that came of it and the opportunities that came from it that we didn't have or I didn't have real access to before just opened so many doors. And it it, it keeps giving, and, and we keep giving, and that's why we're always accessible and always available, you know. Mm-hmm. I, love, I love my girls. I love my team, and I love everything we've done, and... It's just, it's, it's humbling to be a part of that group. Me, your host, we old Hannah Lichtenstein is a direct product of the 99ers. In fact, I was five when the U.S. Women's National Team won that World Cup. And that same summer, my parents signed me up for soccer. Those women were my role models. Uh, I specifically had an embarrassing amount of love for Mia Hamm. I knew all the facts about her and would recite them as a third grader to anybody who would listen. I still have her signed jersey in my room at my parents' house. And it was that idea right there and the millions of people that really felt a magnetism towards this group, inspired by what they'd done and what they represented, that led to the founding of the WUSA, the first professional women's soccer league in North America. Saskia Weber played for the Philadelphia Charge and the New York Power during her time in the league. And it was amazing. We used to sit on the field uh, stretching after the end of practice being like, this is awesome. We're pro athletes you know, here in the United States. Like, this is the best thing ever. You know, and it was. And that's how we all felt. We were incredibly passionate about it. And, you know, this is what we had wanted. And, you know, sadly, it didn't, it didn't keep going. But the NWSL came out of it. And so, you know, some things have to fail to have other things succeed, to do them right the, the second time or the third time. Mm-hmm. But, um, but just that experience of, you know, being a pro athlete and, and this was my job and it was, it was everything you ever dreamed of. Mm-hmm. 
And with the end of the WUSA in 2003, came the end of Saskia Weber, professional soccer player. I retired right after the WSA shut down. I think we had like a we had like an all-star game in uh, Minnesota or something, and I, that's the game I retired at. Went very quietly, um, but um, I think if I think in hindsight that I maybe retired too soon. Um, I had gotten my um, dual citizenship, my Dutch, my Euro citizenship because of my mother being Dutch and stuff. And I was considering going back overseas and playing. But I think that I had maybe kind of hit a bit of a wall and needed to kind of step away and take a break. Um, in hindsight, I, like maybe too soon, but um, it is what it is. Um, my body was also really starting to kind of wear on me. I had a really bad herniated disc and um that needed attention and it was just it was hard it just got to the point that it was like not knowing kind of where the future was um i wasn't with the national team at that time and kind of like you know knowing i had to go through this serious rehab and kind of knowing like what am i going to do to keep myself at this level do i want to go back overseas do i want to go back with the Rutgers men's team like where am i in my head and stuff and i just decided that that it was time Mm -hmm. it wasn't an easy decision trust me speaks to just what a grind it is to be a women's professional athlete I mean they talk about it being a grind right now um but yeah this was almost almost 20 years ago yeah yeah and you had to find you know you had to find how to you had to figure it out like you had to and the money wasn't there so you're also looking at something like well how am I going to survive how am I going to like you know I'm in my thirties and my, I, I don't want to live at home anymore. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, and so it was, you know, trying to figure out how to sustain yourself at that point and keep going was a question as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and that is a question even today. I mean, like, you know, the lower tiers of the NWSL don't make a very a lar- large amount of money. And, you know, how long do you do that for? Mm-hmm. So, um, those, all those questions come in into play. Hanging up her cleats and her gloves, Weber began the process of answering the question of what's next. It's still working on it. <laughs> um, there, there is. It's it's hard. I mean, there. You know, when you look at somebody like Michael Phelps and they talk about that, like post Olympic stress syndrome and that depression and stuff, like that's real. It's real life because not only are you retiring, but your family's retiring. And I don't think people take that into consideration. Like it was hard on my parents. They were so used to like my life being a certain way and, and rooting for me and following me. And then that went away and, and kind of saying, okay, what do I do now? And, um, it was a process. And, and when I walked away from soccer, I actually walked away. I didn't want anything to do with coaching or, or anything. I, um, I started hosting a television show, which was more, it was on, um, television network which was one of the gay first up and coming gay networks and it was like a talk show like an ellen show and i i did that for a couple years and i loved that the network shut down and i found myself in la and i ended up helping promote and run nightclubs and so i kind of like went all different directions the case of michael phelps's struggle with mental health post greatest hits depression this the 99ers, was an extreme example of it. You had the highest of possible highs on one end, 
the kind of sporting accomplishment where not just fans get familiarity with what you did, but like average folks, like people who don't even like sports. And then it's a steep drop because there isn't a return to the cushion of quote regular pro athlete life where you have these sponsors or some stability in a contract for a bit. They had none of that. I mean, they had this new league, but not for long and not on the sturdiest of legs. And it sure was not getting anywhere near the attention they were coming off of. All athletes that achieve a certain level and everything they've kind of wanted to achieve, I think, go through it. And it doesn't matter the amount of money you make or or what. I think that, you know, when you stop playing, something inside of you stops. Like, you've committed your entire life to this. And it's something emotionally that's very difficult. Um, And not knowing, like... Even training's difficult. Like you, you're so used your whole life to training at a certain level and a certain intensity. Like I didn't know how to like go into a gym and get on a treadmill and not crank it up as high as I could possibly crank it up it because I had to go to camp. You know, <laughs> like I'm like, how do I go out for a jog? <laughs> you know, yeah, these are how the I, these are the light like the the not so deep but important aspects of yeah, retirement. How, how, do I, how am I out running and not want the person behind me who I have no idea who they are to pass me? Like, <laughs> it's, it's okay if they pass me. Like, you know, how do I go play pickup and not want to win the game and just go and have fun? These There were all, like, mental things that you have to, like, retrain yourself. And that mm-hmm. takes a while. And some there was a time when I just didn't want to do anything. Like, I was like, I'm not going to the gym. I'm not doing this. You know, because to retrain yourself and I literally had to say just go for a jog it's okay doesn't matter don't bring a watch don't bring anything like just go that's it after a number of years not in sport adjusting trying to find her new niche some familiar tentacles came reaching out and somehow found my way back to soccer Um, because I always had those friends that were like hey will you coach my kid and stuff like that and so I slowly you know did started doing privates again and then got pulled in and started um, being the director of goalkeeping for the LA Bulls. And then I got that phone call uh, this past winter from Amanda Cromwell that said, you know, we'd love for you to be the goalkeeper coach at UCLA. And so here I am. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I didn't know that. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Burnt out and fully stepping away allowed for that soccer ember inside Weber to grow into a flame again. I've never been happier. And um, with everything that's happened over the past couple of years and with, you know, kind of the not resurgence of the 99ers and everything, but, you know, there's so much going on and there was so much going on around the 20th anniversary. Like, I think the timing was just really right and good for me. Mm-hmm. And now it keeps going. And so, you know, I have to conform to the fact that soccer will be the rest of, part of the rest of my life. <laughs> An ember to a roaring fire at that, moving right into a coaching job at a top-tier national title contending program. And getting back into a Division One, you're, you're in it. You're in the highest level. I'm in it. I'm in it. And you know what's fun about that is, like, if I'm going to do it, I've got to do it at the top. Mm-hmm. So, exactly. and I absolutely adore the team. And I love, you know, Amanda and I have played together and been in each other's lives for 30 years and you know just being able to be a part of such an elite team and you know is is absolutely incredible and so I love it and by the way speaking of this idea of soccer coming back in Weber's life and probably here to stay 
She is an owner of the brand spanking new Angel City SC, the newest member of the National Women's Soccer League, set to start play in 2022. Nearly two decades on, having been so in it and so out of it, this is a retired athlete coming from a vantage point to give some insightful parting words for those facing the transition and the loss of an experience that defined them. I think take a breath. Um, It's not going to be easy. And, you know, and like I said, uh, you know, I think it's definitely something to understand that the people around you go through it as well. And so, you know, have those conversations with your parents or your, you know, your loved ones or your significant others, because, you know, they've been invested as you in you as well. And so they have to find like kind of a new outlet and a new focus, but do it together and um, understand that there are going to be roles but don't keep it inside talk to somebody because it there there's so many of us out here that have gone through it and there have been really dark times for me um and leaning on my my loved ones and stuff to get through that has gotten me through it Mm. and helped me find my way back um to soccer uh and find like find a path again and find myself but understand it's not an easy thing don't keep it inside um talk about it talk about it absolutely because i think some people will say people will look at you like are you kidding me you had everything you were the best in the world so what you retired you know get over it but it's just there's so much more to it than that and identify it you know and like i said even down to training and understanding how to train and how not to train and what you do and don't have to do and you know everything was so regimented and now it's not and and there are a lot of facets to it grief is grief And because it's your grief, it's valid. Comparing yours to others only serves to breed isolation because it fosters a self-consciousness around your feelings and your experience that shuts you in and shuts others out. And anyone who has been through the kind of change in life that shatters and reconfigures your whole way of taking on the world knows that the last thing you need in those transition times is to feel alone. So talk, write, lean on, or hey, start a podcast. Thank you to Saskia Weber for coming on to the podcast, and thank you for listening. Hope to see you next time.